What makes for a good adventure? What should we be looking out for when we read through an adventure we bought? And if we're writing an adventure to share, what pitfalls do we need to avoid? If you say My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, rescuers. Yes, I'm pleased to say that it's another interview episode. While I fully appreciate that listening to hour-long-plus interviews is challenging at the best of times, the one good thing that I can definitely say the current global pandemic has given me is the opportunity to talk to some great role-playing game luminaries. My guest today is, despite having been on Roleplay Rescue twice before, no less a delight to share with you. This interview was recorded a little under a month ago, two days before the Steve Jackson interview, and was very much a joy to record. My guest is just about the most hardworking and consistent RPG writer I have ever known, and he's a genuine inspiration to me. I have supported his Kickstarters and never been disappointed with his work. If there was one person on a top 10 list of adventure writers I would like to talk to, this guy would be on it. Yes, right alongside Janelle Jacquet's for one. Yep, he writes for GURPS, but that's not the essence of this interview. Listen in and see what you can learn about writing adventures. This is Season 6, Episode 4, Adventures with Douglas Cole. Douglas H. Cole is the owner of Gaming Ballistic, the first licensed third-party publisher for the Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game and the Fantasy Trip, working in support of Steve Jackson Games' most popular role-playing games. Living near Minneapolis, Doug is known as a long-time GURPS playtester, as a regular contributor to Pyramid Magazine, and as the author of GURPS, Martial Arts Technical Grappling. Doug has also published the Dragon Heresy role-playing game based on a 5th edition SRD, and his most recent projects include Five Perilous Adventures for the Fantasy Trip and the Nordland Sagas for the Dungeon Fantasy RPG, now available for sale. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. When you were diving into sort of creating the northern saga adventures what were your kind of goals you know what i wanted to do with the northern sagas was and primarily it's the same with the uh, the five perilous journeys uh was i wanted to have them not written by me right so what i really wanted to do was see if i could broaden the pool of available authors for gaming ballistics so it wasn't one project at a time only by me and to to turn it into to turn gaming ballistic into more than just a vehicle for uh vanity publishing if that makes sense yeah absolutely so which authors Uh, have you managed to get so the perilous journeys were written by the the writing team of 
Christopher Rice and J. Edward Tremlett for, for uh, let me see, that was two of them, and three of them were written by David Pulver. Right. Of GURPS fame. <laughs> yeah, of GURPS fame and uh, Big Eyes, Small Mouth, and, and, and many other things. Hmm. Um, and the Northland Sagas, I, sagas, I broke in um, three new authors. Um, Kevin Smith uh, wrote both character supplements uh hand of asgard and nordlander folk Mm -hmm. um and then uh kyle norton wrote the dragons of rosgarth and merlin avery wrote forest's end that one was originally titled uh, no festival of fiends that's right and and that instead of it being the title of the entire adventure as it got because originally these were conceived uh, both of as maybe 48 pages long mm-hmm. um short sweet adventures um but that didn't happen and they got <laughs> big uh so uh, forest end blossomed to 96 pages and dragons of rosgarth became 112 by the time the uh, thing was done and that was more than just kind of stuff coming from the kickstarter was it um meaning well I, I, there are a number of stretch goals and bits and pieces i remember the no no there really weren't um uh, truly um i was trying to limit the the stretch goals it was just uh uh it grew in the making mm-hmm. um some of that was uh looking to the i have a particular thing and this will get i think this ties into the top the, the second topic but I have a particular philosophy for adventure design. Mm. Um, and in order to meet that vision of uh, more sandboxy, right? Mm. Um, and less less linear. And really what it boils down to is if you're going to pay me for an adventure mm. rather than homebrew one yourself, I expect... I expect that you expect me to do my homework, which mm. means if you mention something, you talk about it. More specifically, uh, if you say, you know, I don't ever want the thing to say, the game master can do whatever he likes in this particular case, or, you know, make up something, or, you know, the game master can put this treasure wherever he wants. That's not <laughs> why you pay for an adventure. Is that something that's frustrated you when you tried to run adventures from sort of other publishers in the past then? You know, less so that than it was some mistakes that I had made on early drafts <clears throat> of my own stuff. Right. But but also um, just kind of a fingers on the pulse of people talking about adventures and what they like and what they don't like and reading reviews of other things um it's it's really just a matter of and especially with the fantasy trip right this is a group of people who went without their favorite game for something like three decades Mm. um because it went out of print and steve had to wait to get the rights back and all that stuff Mm. um so if you were going to do something with that game you did it yourself you had melee or wizard or in the labyrinth um maybe some of the magazine articles that had come out that, that I don't have access to, mm. but they've been homebrewing for 30 years. Mm. So while at the same time, this is a group of people who clearly do know how to do it yourself. Uh, if they're going to pay 
money for an adventure. That's not the point. The point is to play with no interruptions and no, oh, wait a minute, let me figure this out. And then mm -hmm. so from my perspective, I guess, uh, most of it has to do with not interrupting the flow of play at the table, mm -hmm. which means minimum lookups to books, make it easy to read and reference mm -hmm. uh, and present things in a structured, organized way that the game master can always find what they want within a couple of moments of looking. Hmm. Um, so there's an organizational and editorial component to that. Like uh, if I pull out the adventure um, in a room in a dungeon, you know, I the first thing that I want to do is tell the players what they see without having to roll for anything. Hmm. And on the one hand, that could be, oh, you walk into a dimly lit cavern and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I present that as as usually not boxed text or read. I call it read aloud text, but hmm. it's the stuff that you can just read if you choose to. You can choose to improvise. You can hmm. read it and then say whatever you want. But if you don't want to do that, there is a block of text that lays out what you see. Now, if you're walking into an empty room, you're going to notice the details of the room. If you walk into a place where there's a monster that is going to eat your face, the description is mostly going to be teeth mm. because that was the, that's what the players are going to see and focus on right away. Um, it always made me a little uh, irked in, in other games uh, that I remember from my, my childhood where it would be like, you walk into a scintillating limestone cavern and there's water on the floor and there are runes carved in the walls with screaming faces and there are 15 orcs trying to shoot you. Yeah. There you well, you, you sort of buried the lead on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. I mean, and, and that's the something that uh, you have to watch with uh, both new and old authors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and including myself, is you want to show off the world that you've created. I, I, and it's hard to tell myself this, and it's hard to tell other people this, mm. authors. Nobody gives a crap about your clever world building. Mm. Right? I, I mean, that's not entirely true, but, but the key is to give the game master relief from having to do it themselves. That means being somewhat utilitarian, allowing that adventure to drop into whatever campaign they happen to be running, whether it's your idea of a Nordland kill, it's my idea of a Nordland campaign mm. or not. So you need openness, mm. right? Uh, to, to be able to drop that adventure in, in the midst of an existing story. Um, but it also means uh, not making the, don't, don't give the game master homework and presenting things in a way where you're playing it and you're like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. This is no problem. Um, and I, I, you know, you have to violate that rule at some place because they are paying you for some sort of setting or story. But um, that gets me into the other part of it, which is I get really persnickety about player agency, mm -hmm. right? This needs to be all of the stuff that I publish needs to be, I want it to be the player show, not the cool NPC show. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's a role-playing game. It's not, mm. you know, some sort of uh, um, 
this is a family show, so I, I assume this is a family show, so I'll, I'll keep my uh, analogies tame. But it, <laughs> this is not preening in front of the cameras about how cool my world is, right? Mm. <clears throat> I want the world to feel real. I want it to feel like fantasy Disney Viking land, right? Where you, you know, you don't have horn helmets because, you know, that was completely ahistorical and there's only so far I'm willing to go. Um, <clears throat> but, but, you know, you want it to be, you know, mighty thewed men and women doing great things to go to Valhalla. Um, mm. But you also want someone who really wants to play cat folk to have a hook. And so you drop a hint that the cat folk come from an island that, that's, you know, or a, a land far away that's totally not Egypt, really. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, there were some hints dropped to a realm called Inthriki. Um, they, they, we mentioned, uh, in Forest and, uh, the, the latest, or maybe it was in, uh, actually it was, no, it was in, in Yarngarter in the Dragons of, uh, Rosgarth. Mm. Uh, they mentioned that the, the latest craze is eating Inthriki death peppers, <clears throat> which try to kill you twice. <laughs> um, one on the way in and one on the way out. Um, and that was actually based on uh, uh, my own martial arts master, uh, Tejin Lee. Uh, Grandmaster fed me a pepper. Uh, and when we were traveling in Korea and many years ago, and it was just light your face on fire. And he's like, you know, once I had calmed down, he goes, don't worry, you'll have this fun again tomorrow. Um, and that always, so now, it's, now that I've immortalized that in the game, um, but you know there, and then um, some of the bad guys are are from in Rosgarth, are from other places in the notional world that is. Uh, Etera is the world that we call. I never actually mentioned the <clears throat> the name of the the continent and the and the the land that's featured in the Dungeon Fantasy role playing game, just because it's got to be portable. Um, yeah. Dragon Heresy. It's the it's you know the world and the land is called Etera, which just means land, right? Earth, mm -hmm. and uh, there's totally not Macedonian Greece uh, land called Moravel, um, and there's a totally not Japan and Korea called Inthriki, and uh, <laughs> uh, there's actually was it uh, there's a couple of small, somewhat disorganized countries uh, or realms south of of nordland uh which is the size of of great britain or minnesota yeah. um both of them are roughly a hundred thousand square miles um i think about a quarter of a million square kilometers sound about mm -hmm. right yeah um so i wanted it big enough to be a really a it's hard to say right you want it to be big enough to be a credible threat mm. right this is a land that could have power and and influence and and not just be a tiny place um but not so big that it's like you know most of the realms in a thousand a.d were were not the size of the united states of america or australia from coast to coast right mm. they were smaller um you know you had a couple of outliers like the roman empire but even the roman empire was an empire it was not one discrete realm yeah. it was a series of, of realms that were controlled by the metropole of rome and they more or less left the government in place right hmm. so that was what made it so extensible but and you know and there were other things that were all ruled by one i think the mongol empire and uh you know the you know the british empire was the largest empire in history 
uh, as I'm telling someone who knows precisely that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it was news to me because he never really you, you heard about it and you read about it. Oh, the sun never set on the British Empire. And then you look at the span of it and it, it really it was true. Um, <laughs> uh, and and so and that was something where I said, yeah, there's really no limit on the upper end to the power that a realm of about a quarter million square kilometers can, uh, can exert. So, so that was about the right size for the place. Um, but, uh, you know, you wanted other realms and cultures and, and whatnot. Mm. Um, although we've had to uh, do some interesting tap dancing to say, well, if the, ow, 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 ow. sorry, my, I have a very happy cat. Um, <laughs> but she's also got uh, razor sharp claws of death. Uh, and so when she gets happy, she needs me and, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, she's doing the thing where she turns my chest to hamburger. Anyway, sorry about that. But uh, yeah, so, you know, you wanted to have all these different cultures to be able to, to you know, you don't want the entire world to be fantasy Viking land because that's less fun. Mm. Um, and so then you have to say, well, if the gods are real and they're Odin and, and Thor and those guys, mm. uh, then why isn't everybody fantasy Viking land? Mm. Uh because seriously, if you can wander around and have a co- uh, conversation with Heimdall or, or get jiggy with uh, Valfreya or, uh, or Scathy, if you're looking for, for a little bit of uh, disinterested stuff, you know, these are, these are not legends of the Norse gods or like the Greek gods really are, are you know, they're, they're mm. flawed and interesting, and, but they interact. And when I say interact, I really mean have sex with uh, people. <laughs> um, and and so it's you know the the it's not like oh you know it, you know, actually it, it, the the Marvel movies did a pretty good job of 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 depicting some of that. It's like you know if you start making fun of Loki, and Thor may show up and say, hey, you know he's my brother, hmm. stop it. And and so because of that, you have to really say, well, if the gods are real and they they exert tremendous cosmic power and they created the world and all that stuff. Um, why isn't the entire world's culture that thing? Hmm. Uh, and as long as there's a metagame reason in the background, you can wave your hands at it. And we did, right? It's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's not important, really, what, what that reason is. Um, but uh, it, it does tie into why you can have the different cultures. It's not just a monoculture. So you're trying to write adventures that were very much ready to pick up from a GM's yes. perspective. You know, um, obviously someone you're hoping, I'm guessing, is hoping to... They have the knowledge or at least the basic idea how Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game runs and they're ready to go with it. And um, I I always, I felt when I read them that there was um, quite a, you know, I, I think about like just when you start with um, Hall of Judgment, there's um, there's a pathway, if you like, through that adventure in that sense. But like you, you alluded to, there's this real sense of agency in that there are more than one way um, to deal with that situation and, and to explore that realm. Is that fair? I think that that is fair, and it my it, my so Hall of Judgment is somewhat unique in the four. There's Hall of Judgment, Citadel at Nordvorn, uh, Dragons of Rathgarth, and Farsen. Hall of Judgment was my first, and it was written as a convention adventure, mm-hmm. much like many of the other D and D adventures had been in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was written very explicitly as a, a thing that a group of people would do in a convention. Mm-hmm. And conventions have a different feel to it, right? Mm. Uh, a convention adventure can be and usually is more like a roller coaster 
than a sandbox. You pay your money to ride the coaster and you expect the game, the game master to be on the ball and you're going through something and because you're going to play it over and over again and because you're going to um, play it with strangers mm. uh, a little more linearity is okay so hall of judgment started with a standard go find the MacGuffin quest mm. and but it also started as a D adventure lost hall of tear mm. um set in the dragon heresy uh, fifth edition really because at that point the adventure was designed to show off the dungeon grappling rules mm. um but then i talked to steve jackson games and said hey you're releasing dungeon fantasy role-playing game i'd really love to write a scenario uh lost hall of tear is done the art is done let me expand it mm. and work it over a bit for um dungeon fantasy role-playing game and and steve mm. said let me think about it i said okay you know and i wasn't really you know they're they had been very um parsimonious with um licensing in the past so eventually i you know i came back around and said hey what do you think about this and like you know this is a nice low risk way to approach this mm. right it, it, there's you know it Worst case, you write up some new stats. The art is done, and everything, right? And so it, it was really the mm. odds of this thing simply just not showing up, uh, you know, failed Kickstarter uh, were low. Uh, I had already done two Kickstarters before, Dragon Heresy and, and uh, Lost All of Tear. Mm. Um, so, so they knew that I knew how to run it. They knew that I could write and edit because I had written for them before. And then mm. anyway, so... At the core, Hall of Judgment is go get the thing. Mm. And in the expansion from Lost Hall of Tear at 64 pages to Hall of Judgment at 128, I added a lot more of town, mm -hmm. uh, things to do, in, and multiple pathways. Like it, to me, it wasn't really important where the hall was. And there was a magical, mystical teleportation device and a puzzle that you um, doesn't even show up in Hall of Judgment. Right. There was a way of almost uh, a gate, take a gate directly to the hall. Um, and, and that actually was edited out completely. And it became the Overland Journey because it's an arbitrarily long adventure now, uh, meant to be campaign play rather than. Uh, uh, convention play because yeah. um, in a convention you want to finish it you know you've got three or four hours and you want to get to the hall and and find the surprise there and win the fight and and whatever and so anyway long story less long is now you can sort of choose how to do it the the village of loga heimley uh that was added to hall of judgment that does not appear at all in lost hall of tear became my sand my little personal sandbox for convention play yeah. um i will run people from isfial to that village um and you know the cleansing of 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 the the ward stones that are messing around with magic that are the key there and then that's usually the three or four hours that that's all we have time for and that's enough um so that's usually what I do in conventions, and the actual discovery of the hall is uh, usually left to 
other people's imaginations. But I've seen some playthroughs online, which is always gratifying. And, and you know, one team got there and made a discovery of what was in the hall and they left without solving it. They're like, we're going to come back better prepared, and, which is great because that's it was a totally valid thing to do. Yeah. Um, and but it also says, you know, it play didn't stop and the game master didn't throw up his hands and say, well, the, well, the guys are not going in. So we just had to end the adventure. Right. It was no, we're going to go and we're going to come back. And that was OK because the world was big enough to accept it. Yeah. And the adventure was flexible enough to accept it. So Hall of Judgment is definitely there's a there's a rail there. There is a, a roller coaster there that you can step on yeah. uh, and go you know, oh, first we journey to here, and then we journey to here, and then we do the thing, and then we journey back. Nordvorn is exactly the opposite. It, it's a total sandbox. Now, there's a lot going on in the background, hmm. um, but there's you could potentially join the side of the bad guys and not know it. You know, and 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 no one's really. You know, you've got your fairies, you've got your your demons, you've got your typical, uh, you know, your typical set of adversaries for for the thing, and so you've got your and your dragon, your dragonkin beyond the wall, because mm. of course there has to be a wall and have to be dragonkin, um, and uh, you know, and part of it is the setting started very deliberately as let me do all the tropes. We have this thing called the Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, which is deliberately filled with these classic role-playing tropes. Mm. Uh, and so I just kept dropping cliches in there. Um, and then when I came time to play test it, I was like, oh, and then we'll wrap. And the, the decision to make it Viking land came last. Right. It didn't come first. Uh, and, and so, you know, then it all kind of woven together. But the point is, is Nord Nordvorn is just a sandbox and there's a couple of villages and you can make more mm -hmm. uh, because there's a nifty village generator built in there. Um, and then forest end is, I found interesting as a creator because it's actually the first dungeon, like honest to God, let's go into a maze and, and go through a delve and kill things and take their stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wanted that because although the dungeon fantasy role-playing game as published up till then by me, was a lot it, it handles it well but it was a lot bigger than go underground kill things and take their stuff mm. there's a lot of npc play there's a lot of city play mm. there's a lot of faction play there's uh you know skaldic rap battles in nordvorn <laughs> which i still love being able to put in there um but there's all kinds of stuff that isn't hey kill things and take their stuff um but i wanted some of that because that is the core of the the dungeon fantasy role playing game experience mm. and uh you know with the others i really did want to have a vibrant world and so there's there's a city or a town or a village or some home base in thus far everything that i've done mm. um and so skogarenda uh, forest end has dungeons in it two of them as a matter of fact mm. and, and and frankly i think it's the the maze that merlin put together is is pretty cool um and a lot of really good, unique solutions to different rooms, and there's a good variety of challenges. And, mm. um, and Forest End is a castle uh, with a dungeon underneath it, mm. um, but there's also an above-ground part to it that cannot be taken on, I don't think, it can be taken on head-to-head -head by four to six 
powerful adventurers. Mm -hmm. You'll just get the floor wiped with you. Um, so if you want to take that part of the challenge on, um, there's social play. Mm -hmm. You're pitting one faction against another and stuff like that. So, and then there's a journey, and there's also a town, right? And there are things to do in all of those. So, all of those are are much more open ended. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, people who have read and reviewed the four books together see how they blend together. And I was reading a play report in Nordvorn where the group twigged to the main some of the main plot lines, the main plot threads and really are digging them. Mm. Um, and the game master who was a backer dropped in some hints from Rosgarth and it just worked. It was great. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was, didn't feel forced. It was, Oh, we've gone out into the forest and some of these bad guys show up and they're scary and they're, you know, you know, they're riding 30 foot flying dinosaurs, you know, 10 meter flying dinosaurs that breathe lightning, you know, and, and that was, that's uh it's like foreshadowing, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, where did this guy come from? Well, I don't know. We have other problems. Okay. And then the game master can decide whether the clock has started on the Rosgarth adventure or to keep dropping hints uh, until he can run it. And so it really opens up the playing field in that area quite a bit for the game master and the players to do what they want. Mm. I'm wondering... You know, someone listening to this who doesn't play Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game may be thinking, this sounds really interesting and fun, um, but how transferable might those adventures be? What do you think about that? You know, if you're willing to do some of the work to... Uh, well, first of all, I mean, I do intend at some point to convert them to Dragon Heresy, which means that playing them in, say, 5th edition is going to be trivial because Dragon Heresy and 5th and, and edition are, are, are kissing cousins, as you were. Um but no, it's it. Most of the adventure is systemless, mm. right? Uh, you know that you know Ilsa and and uh, Asleaf, two of the main NPCs in Citadel at Nordvorn. You know that they feel like moderately high level or you know high higher level. Uh, I think Ilsa is like a a, a, swa a rogue type, uh, a spear wielding swashbuckler in the uh, Dungeon Fantasy, which translates well into a rogue mm. um, in in D and D. Uh, and Ilsa's oh, she's a wrestler. That's right. Maybe it's a, or maybe it's a barbarian uh, rogue. Uh, and Ilsa is basically a wrestler class, mm. um, which uh, is probably best represented in D&D as a barbarian or a monk. Mm. Um, and, and so you could do it. And, and the situations and the NPCs are relatable enough that you can really see running it. If you've got good system familiarity, you know, the, the Ethmu folk are lizard people and the Gangathla are kobolds. And uh, knowing that you can get a long way. Mm. Um, some of the fairy are somewhat unique. Um, you know, the Nordalfs that appear, the Nordalfar that appear in um, Hall of Judgment. Um, you know, the uh, the Nordalfs are uh, goblins mm -hmm. and the uh, Storalfs are hobgoblins. Um, and then there's hobs, which are uh, bugbears. Mm -hmm. So the serial numbers are not filed off too hard in Hall of Judgment, but all of these creatures... Uh, took on life of their own. Like, for example, there were no orcs in Nordland, 
until Kyle put them there and we decided that they were an offshoot of giants. Right. And from long time ago they were weak. <clears throat> we called them Urgia Jotun, um, which means runt giant. Uh, Urgia <laughs> means runt um, in uh, in Ukrainian, I think. And because we try and in order to do that, we'll try and find a language. Um, you know, obviously Nordland is is bad Icelandic. Um, and uh, yeah, I had an, an Icelander say, "Oh, well, that's backwards. Instead of this, it should be that." You know, instead of uh, one word followed by another, like you know, mm. something brother. It was should really be brother something. I'm like, look, Google is what Google is. Uh, and any Icelander who wants to correct my pronunciation and my spelling and my word declension for um, for the nouns is more than happy to give me feedback during the Kickstarter. But after it's published, you have to deal with that, you know, the Nordlander language is not uh, actually Icelandic. It's just close. So thinking about adventures more generally then, I mean, you've alluded to a number of things today. You've talked about the, obviously the desire is it has to be practical for the GM. It has to be something you can pick up and run with that you, you know, obviously you want to present a different fantasy realm and you want to offer, offer them that alternative. But what's first and foremost is, to what I'm understanding is that it's got to be playable. It's got to be like, I've got to be able to pick this up and run with it. Um, I, that's right. I, that's right. Now I've heard a lot of people complain about um, adventures. You know, generally speaking, from other kind of publishers or whatever over the years, as being more written to read rather than being written to play. I mean, is that something that you feel is um, a reality out there, or it? I think it is. I think um, I think it's a real tendency. You have a great idea, mm. and you're like, wouldn't this story be cool? Mm. And the problem with that is that it constrains both the game master and the players mm. to play it your way. And, you know, I, I, I guess one of my, my formative experiences in game mastering was a situation where I thought it would be really clever if two groups of my friends, uh, one who... Uh, I didn't know I had quite so many role player friends uh, in my first couple of years in college, and mm -hmm. I had I had playing a game, and they're like, "Oh, that sounds really cool. Let me play too." And yeah, me and me and me. And so there were like six people who had played uh, a, an adventure or two, and there were another six fresh joiners. Wow. Um, and they uh, and, and that was a table that became like wound up being like 15 people, right? Um, yeah, it was a lot of people. <laughs> and it was the, I, I can't remember, I'll come back to the actual story, but one of the things that made 15 people around the table even plausible was at the time we were playing the West End Games D6 Star Wars game. Right. Which is incredibly fast to play. Mm. Uh, and it's Star Wars, and we were all Star Wars fans. Mm. And so you didn't have to worry about background lore. Everyone knew the story, mm. right? And so you could play in that world with no interruption. And, and let me come back to that, because that's one of the other things that makes an adventure hard to pick up and use. Mm. Um, but I, was, I, I thought it would be really cool if in this monster hunting 
campaign that was based off of the uh, dark conspiracy setting from West End, uh, from sorry, Games Workshop, uh, Games Designers Workshop. Sorry, Games Workshop mm. is the the other guys. Uh, the GDW had Dark Conspiracy, which was mm. based off of their second edition Twilight Two Thousand engine, and it was the worst game system ever. <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, great setting, but the mechanics yeah. of the system were just wretched. Um, but the point was, is that I was like, okay these two groups of people are happening upon upon the same encounter. And one of the groups was like, well, we're just going to sit up here and wait. I'm like, no, you can't do that. I need you to mix it up. (laughs) I need everyone here in the combat zone. So go there. And the guy was looking at me like, well, why are we even playing if you're going to tell us what to do? And, and I, re- I always remember that right? because he was so right. Mm. And, and it was, I was like, look, I was trying to do something, but this was a bad way of doing it. And by forcing the players down particular ze- realms, mm. you're really treating them like characters in a TV show. Mm. And th- a role-playing game is not an episodic TV show because you don't control what the characters do. Mm. You don't know who the characters are going to be. You cannot assume that... Well, actually, Firefly, any, you know, Firefly, for example, just because I was watching uh, uh, Nathan Fillion's new show, The Rookie, last night. But all those guys are cops. Actually, there's mm. a good example, right? In, in The Rookie... It's uh, sort of a pseudo-reality. You're following the life of a police officer uh, in Los Angeles. So there's mm-hmm. danger and there's investigation and there's inter-character drama and all that stuff. But you can't script that in a role-playing game. Mm. You can only say crimes are happening. Mm. You can't s- assume this character is going to do this and this character is going to do this, especially... As a publisher, I don't know what characters a game master and players are bringing to the table. I don't know whether a group of people is role-playing as uh, power-tripping escapism or as a proxy to solve the world's social ills. It may be a little bit of both. Mm. But I can't assume that, and I can't force it. And I think that games that... I mean, GURPS is a niche system anyway. Mm-hmm. And to say, well, I'm only writing for people who want to kill things and take their stuff. Well, that's actually pretty broad. But, you know, if I wanted to, you know, address the vagaries of Viking climate change or something, um, <laughs> that's there's going to be like six people who are like, this is the best campaign ever. But it was probably my six favorite playtesters. Right, yeah. it, it's 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 really publishing from for me and my group, not mm. as a broader thing. So yeah, um, I, I I think that the agency question and how you write a role playing game needs to be you're setting up a series of situations you don't necessarily know. That's actually one of the nice things about a, a, a labyrinth is you can in a way force. The order of operations. Oh, first they have to go to this room in order to get here. You go there, um, but mostly you set up a set of situations, and you leave it to the players to to be the star of the show. Mm. Um, 
and I'm always wary. I, you know, and, and I can say I, I just I read a manuscript recently, and my feedback was I'm going to give you my impression of this adventure. The entry scene, the players sit around and listen to the NPC talk. These next three or four scenes, there's a couple of fights that have no impact on the overall plot line, and the primary NPC say it solves the show. Oh, here's the first real decision, a third to halfway, and it really doesn't matter. Mm. And now we're back to the NPC show again. That might be good television. It sounds like a pretty good story because there's an interesting character. But because the players aren't the axis around which the world turns, hmm. it's a bad adventure. And I'll, I'll, I will stand by bad as, an, as a value judgment there hmm. rather than, oh, it only appeals to certain people. I don't think that is a well-written role-playing game adventure. Hmm. You seem to feel like role-playing... It's about having um, that agency, that uh, ability to make the choice for yourself. That's what you're emphasizing, right? I think so. I mean, at least the games that I played, uh, you know, D, you know, the D and D Fifth Edition, um, and you know, the GURPS, and especially the the GURPS, where every you know, not only are I mean, you know, you have to go a long way in the Dungeon Fantasy role playing game. You really have to f uh, enforce the templates, right? That's not how GURPS does naturally but mm. as a time-saving effort and a niche protection effort um the designers gave you these templates to help you make effective characters quickly um mm. but you know you really don't want to constrain uh the group there is the philosophy of it which is you know make it open but if the only way that you can play a given adventure is either to have played one before or to be in a particular town at a particular mm. moment if the only time that you can run an adventure is if you walk in to the village of Longbrew in spring or spring of Eteri year 965, well, mm. if you're already in Eteri year 967, you missed it. Mm. It's already happened. Um, and, and so that's the kind of thing you want to avoid, right? Um, from a marketing and from a accessibility perspective, I want people to buy my stuff. And if in order to play my game, you have to be playing your campaign a particular way, hmm. then the best that you can do is run my game as a one shot. Oh, we're going to do something different this session. Whereas in order to make the game that I'm writing or the the stuff that I'm writing Something where someone's like, "Oh, well, I want to continue to explore that." It really, you really need to be able to plunk Nordland down wherever you want. It's one of the reasons why the map isn't finished, <laughs> right? You 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 always see that you see in in Dragon Heresy, you see the whole land, but because I can say, "Hey, you're playing in this world," um, but in Dungeon Fantasy role playing game, uh, the map goes down to the capital, and there's always a hint of big events where they're fighting some horrible foe to the south but mm. it's not drawn and i don't know that it's ever going to be drawn because i need that as the puzzle piece that you can stick in your own campaign world yeah it's about lifting what you've done and you know to right. like surgically and put it into your setting you, I, I i want it to be able to be graftable 
as mm. fantasy barbarian Viking land uh, into anybody's play. And yeah. uh, I know one group because I was reading a, a play. I don't get a lot of play reports. It sounds like I'm, I'm, I get all of this feedback and, and mostly game authors don't. Um, and I am no different than that. So I'm talking about like all four reviews that I've gotten. Uh, <laughs> um, but more importantly, someone did say, yeah, you know, this group of players sailed up the river to one of the towns from other fantasy location land, yeah. which is awesome. Right. Um, and it's also unstated, but Aterra is roughly twice the diameter of planet Earth, so four times the surface area. Um, and hollow, because of course it is. Um, so there's a world beneath the world that you could conceivably, you know, explains where, why everything's always coming up from underneath and dungeons mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Um, but the world beneath the world is really the, uh, in my mind is the purview of the dwarves at mm -hmm. Verger. The Dverger are the chosen of the Asgardians to deal with the world inside the world and the humans are the chosen of the guys guardians to deal with the world on the surface i was wondering about like in terms of writing adventures and producing these how different it was going with five perilous journeys because those are very much more standalone is my impression um that that is correct that is correct um the the ones that david has written um one is a solo vampire mm. hunter belladonna uh, and the next two that he's writing for me right now are solos, because uh, mm. TFT people like solos. And then he wrote Iron Skull Castle, um, which went by Castle Iron Skull for, for so long that in the first published version, uh, the cover was printed with Iron Skull Castle, but the inside was written Castle Iron Skull. Right. Um, <laughs> I fixed that on the PDF, but there's only so much I can do for print. And he also wrote Citadel of Ice. And those are absolutely... We're going along in our campaign and you come upon a situation and the world of Sidri is deliberately vague on how big it is, but you know, it's vast, mm -hmm. like really, really, really vast. Uh, Jupiter, the surface area of Jupiter may not be big enough. Uh, I, I've heard <laughs> credible speculation that a ring, it could be a ring world. Mm hmm. Right. It, it, it's just that big. Maybe it's even a Dyson sphere. Who knows? Mm. Um, but these creatures that created Sidri made a really, really big sandbox. And so you need to be able to drop it in and then play. Mm. Um, and so that David likes writing these standalone things because it gives you more creative freedom. Um, Christopher and uh, Jay Tremlett have written a connected series of stories. Five adventures, you'll see the next three that feature a primary motivator, sort of a patron in them, and they are connected. And the authors and I are working together constantly to make sure that the things that we just got finished talking about for the last 47 minutes stay true, uh, <laughs> right? It, it, when you have a story like this, and and it's subtle, it's subtle, mm -hmm. uh, but they are connected and they do tell an evolving story. But like for example, some of the openings are like two months have passed since the last adventure, and you know I'm like flag on the play. You can't tell a group of players what they've been doing mm -hmm. because if they're ready to run the adventure right then, and the first thing that they do is say, two months have passed. 
and you guys just sat around doing nothing for two months, the group may not do that, right? They may not want to, quote-unquote, sit around in town and, oh, and time passes, right? You can't assume, you can't tell the Game Master, this is what you and your players are doing for eight weeks of time. That's not awesome. It's not the worst sin imaginable, but it's not great. Um, And so that's where I'm always saying, okay, Remember, agency, 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 agency. You cannot force the game master and the players to your pace, hmm. right? It needs to be, and and so that's where writing those serials are um, is a challenge. Hmm. Um, you know, oh, oh, these things need to happen, so I'll give those things to NPCs. Nope, can't. I'm not going to let that happen, right? As an editor and a publisher, I'm not going to. There are going to be, I'm sure, certain fulcrum events where the NPC does something um, and it's important that it happens. And so you sort of say, okay, fine, only this person can do that. But by and large, you really want to structure it. So if something needs to happen, it's the players not only doing it, but the wanting to do it. Hmm. Right. You know, like, you know, I've said, you know, if you are walking through something and you walk here and the door closes behind you so you can only walk forward and then you walk into the next room and the door closes behind you and you can only walk forward. Well, that's forcing it, right? Hmm. But if the players are saying, and now we walk forward and now we walk forward and oh, and now we get the, the secret sauce and we walk forward to the next kitchen and we want to see what the meal is and then we want to walk to the next thing. Well, it's the same pathway, but the players are invested in it, and so they're forcing the pace. And that's good adventure design, right? When if they pick up the ball and run down the field, hmm. then you know you may not have to do a lot of thinking in terms of what the plot is. You just throw some defenders in the way, and they have to get out of the way, and and or you know they could fight, they could avoid, they could do whatever. But if they're running the ball down the field, you don't want to say, no, 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 you're not, you know, I wanted to play American football and you're playing rugby. No, you let them play their game their way. And as game master and as a writer, you want to conform, you want to enable mm-hmm. the players to enjoy the game their way. And, and so that's the hard thing about connected adventures and it's why the perilous journeys were um, mostly different. I mean, Crown of Eternity and Curse of the Pirate King can be played disconnected. Hmm. Uh, the The next three, uh, which tentatively are titled uh, Rock of Sages, uh, Catacombs of Living Death, and um, The Sunken Library, hmm. those three, it gets harder and harder uh, and actually, for the fifth one, because it does tie together the first four, uh, we just gave up. We said, okay, this requires um, you to have played through Catacombs. Right. Because we're going to pick up the action where Catacombs ends. It's also going to be bigger because in writing and reading through, I've read through the drafts of all three of those. So they're done. Or, well, they're not done, done. Because in order to make sure that it's player focused, we're doing quite a lot of work. But the stories there are uh, Sunken Library really requires catacombs because we pick up right where it starts. And mm-hmm. so that one, we're going to say, yep, yeah, okay, we're going to begin 
right at the end of this, there's a cliffhanger line in four um, where the NPC says, oh, we need to leave. We need to get out of here. Uh, and then book five is going to pick up right there. Right. Um, and, and so it's also twice as long. That one's going to be 30. The, 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 the normal is 16 pages. Catacombs is going to, sorry, uh, Sunken Library is going to be uh, 32. Hmm. I'd like to flip things around a little bit just for the last five minutes or so and just ask about sure. your thoughts on how, as a GM, you might take the adventures, you know, or any kind of pre-written adventure, really, and kind of get that ready for play. What kind of tips would you offer? I mean, you've been gaming since, what, 81? So you must have a few uh, thoughts. <laughs> yeah, late, late, late 80s. Um, that came up a little bit because uh, the the... My wife and I were talking about uh, listening to some great, you know, introducing our kids to some 80s and 90s music, and uh, I was like, yeah, there's a, there's a station that plays that, and we looked, and when my wife was growing up here in the in the Twin Cities, the station that is now playing 80s and 90s music is the oldies station, right. which was painful, because <laughs> now that, now, you know, my music is 80s and 90s music, and, and that's um, the oldies now. Anyway, so, you know, I think the first thing is... Um, Ideally, I would like a game master uh, to read through the adventure first. It doesn't mean word for word, although it's nice. Uh, I would like them to read it so that they understand what's there, hmm. um, get an idea of what the challenges are and stuff like that. But I don't write them such that you have to do that. That's one of the reasons I'm so big on agency and, and most importantly, the authors doing the homework Hmm. Right. You know, don't drop a magic sword and say the game master can figure out how much it's worth. No, that, absolutely. That's my job as an editor and the hmm. author's job is to to provide the stats and, 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 and don't just say, oh, the game master can put whatever treasure is, is needed there. Um, because especially if I'm playing it cold. If I haven't read through and said, "Oh well, the, the I've oh I didn't realize that this was going to be a homework assignment. I guess I have to read this room and <laughs> decide whether I want this to be a high loot dungeon or a low loot dungeon, right?" Yeah. Um. So and that's that really sort of ties back to the don't give homework. You know, do the do the work, and um, you know, the people are paying you to have done that for them so that they don't have to. Um. And and you know, it, in in my mind, I always think of it as people like myself who are busy, and I'm going to sit down and play hmm. and if i'm going to run a prepared adventure it's because i haven't had time to create my my own or i want a break and so anyway so i want people to be able to uh, to look for it but so i'm going to expect people to open up nordvorn and or forest end or whatever and read the quick start yeah right here's some ways to start oh okay so here's how we're going to get these people into this all of them have a list of festivals um, and if you're not already familiar with fantasy Viking land, walking into a festival is a great way to do it because you instantly get immersed in the culture and the religion, right? Almost all of these festivals are, uh, offering thanks or asking for help mm. to, to the pantheon of gods, um, because that's what you did. Um, historically, my understanding was there were roughly 60 major holidays in in a lot of the the fence sort of the european medieval calendars mm. about once a week mm -hmm. you had a holy day of some point 
and it wasn't always Sunday, although, you know, post-Christian it, it could have been. But, you know, anyway, so the getting back to your, your question, um, you know, I like to drop people into festivals. Uh, I like to start with a fight. Yeah. If you're, if you're, especially if you're getting into a campaign uh, and that worked really well for me with a group of 12 or 13 people playing through the Citadel at Nordvorn at the first Fnordcon, uh, which would have been this last weekend. Yeah. I would have just Fnordcon two was supposed to be this last weekend. And I would have been arriving on Southwest airlines back home today, <laughs> alas for the virus. Um, but, you know, so I started that with, a fight because you had all these characters who had never met each other before because it was mm. convention play and it was an easy battle. It was a deliberately easy battle. Everyone got to fight and everybody got to win a little bit and people got introduced to 3d6 roll low and mm. they got a feel for how badass their characters could be. Um, so that's important. Um, yeah. cause you know, if you're playing a new character, especially if you're playing in a new character in a new system, you don't know. I mean, if I say, oh, you have a 250-point character, you don't know that that's a big deal, right? You don't necessarily know that having a axe mace skill of 20 or 24 or whatever allows you to chop to the neck with near certainty every single time or to strike twice with near certainty to the torso every single time. And you don't know that because you're a strength 19 barbarian where, you know, wielding a big two, that... You know, you might be used to the thing where you're just whittling away hit points, where mm. in Dungeon Fantasy role-playing game, if you hit somebody solidly with an axe and you mm. actually hit them because they fail their defense roll, they are almost certainly going down if they're human. Mm. Um, and not always, but most of the time, it's, it's you know, what's the line from the old uh, Breakfast Club movie? It's going to be two hits, me hitting you and you hitting the floor. <laughs> um, and, and that's pretty true. And you get to see... By inflicting a one-sided battle on the NPC's side being losing, the players get to see how fragile f human foes are. And hopefully they make the connection that that applies to them too if they ever fail a defense roll. Um, but anyway, they were over they overmatched the bandits, but they also sail in with this ship, mm. which is worth like 25,000 or 50,000 or 100,000. I mean, ships are incredibly... Ships are basically mobile treasure. Mm -hmm. You can get in your treasure and sail away. It's like, you know, I mean, owning a ship is like owning a Lamborghini. It, it's just a very expensive proposition to build these things because of all the resources that go into them. But, and they're like, oh, are we going to be arrested? Is this a bad thing? What's it going to be like? <laughs> and the, the, the vessel captain that they had been riding were like, these brave heroes, you know, who will certainly go to Valhalla saved my ship. And he starts telling wildly, I mean, and it was a one-sided decisive fight. Yeah. And this guy is telling stories on the dock to anyone who will listen. And you got a guy in the background saying, toss a coin to your witcher, you know, as he's composing skaldic poetry and then that becomes the introduction because they walk into an inn or a tavern and someone else is telling the story of now it's you know six ships on either side and <laughs> the brave heroes are leading an army of noble warriors and blah 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 and so you get to see that okay this is going to be a society where if we get into a fight and we win and it's considered an honorable fight and so you get a feel for the culture mm. and that's what, how, why all of my 
adventures have festivals and towns and a bit about law and order and society and all that stuff. I, I like, I'm a big fan of rumor tables yeah. um, or what, you know, having ways of getting the players interested in something and, you know, uh, sort of uh, one of the things that I'd like to do uh, after I get through the current log of projects is to have some smaller self-contained scenarios, you know, 12, 16, 20, uh, 24 pages hmm. that are little missions that build off of one of these four large staging points. Yeah. You know, here's some things you can do if you're already in Isfial from Hall of Judgment. Here's some things in the towns in and around Nordvorn. Um, hmm. And, you know, the Nordvorn especially has this swath of land that is now very unsettled to the north and west uh, of the town called the Hunted Lands, the Viderland. Um, and that area is now overrun with ill-tempered fairy. Mm. And, and it's actually referenced because there are things happening in the Dragons of Rasgarth, Rosgarth, where normally the right answer would be, this is why we have lords, and this is why lords have armies. Mm -hmm. The armies are unavailable because they're all dealing with problems in Nordvorn. Because even in a warlike society in 1000 AD, you did not have a Napoleonic-sized army kicking around, <laughs> right? It was a very low, relatively low professional soldier contingent. Hmm. And, and so if they're deployed elsewhere, you're stuck. Hmm. And, and that's kind of why, you know, that's the thing is you, you want to, getting back to the subject of, of agency and, and players and and you know you want a reason for the adventurers to do something right mm. you don't want the solution to the puzzle or the the problem that you're putting in front of the players be i go inform the police and the police handle it mm. <laughs> right that that's not usually why you're there um and i made that mistake once as a player is i i misunderstood the nature of what was going on and i was you know, oh, I was just playing my character, right? Anybody anytime says that, just kick him out of your game. <laughs> I'm just playing my character. You're gone, right? <laughs> I'll give you one yellow card. Um, and then after that, you're gone. Um, but uh, I was just playing my character. And I was like, well, you know, I'm an upright military guy. So I'm going to report this up the chain of command. It's like, oh, aren't you going to investigate on your own? Well, no, that's, that's not what you do when you're an upright <laughs> military guy. You follow the chain of command. <laughs> and the game master's like, I don't think that, you're going to work in this campaign. And he, as he should, he kicked me out. Right. Um, and, and that's the thing. You want the players to feel the agency of making the choice to go investigate and to solve the problem themselves and to give them a reason to do it. And, and that's where, if you're running a prepared adventure, what you're looking to do is have the players buy a ticket to your roller coaster. Mm. And they need a reason to do it. And it needs to come from their own motivations, their own character, their own decisions. Once they have that, you have put the hook in the fish's mouth so that I can mix metaphors properly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but once, once you've done that, once they've bought that ticket, then they've bought into whatever twists and turns and dips and, 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 and whatever are going to come. Um, but it also, that's your permission to put some of these pieces in front of them, but also have the plans of what if they want to solve it in a unique way. 
or not solve it at all. That's that's one of the things that uh, uh, is another part of the adventure writing is what happens if the PCs fail or choose not to do it? Mm. Like in Rosgarth, if you choose, if, or and Rosgarth and Farce and both, there are things that will happen unless you interfere with them. And if you either fail to interfere with them or attempt to interfere with them and it or or don't uh, do it at all, you know the bad guys can win, and that's going to change the nature of of the towns or the area forever. Um, and, and that's okay. Uh, but you know, if you say, for example, don't worry, the NPC will ride in and save the day, then that does not work well. Uh. Right. Um, now people can and will, and it's true say, and yet, like if you look at the Hobbit, yeah. even the, you know, in the, even in the movie, the dwarves are all tied up. Bilbo is, is stalling. And in the end of the day, Gandalf says, you know, the dawn will take you all the rock splits or whatever. And there's a great light and the trolls turn to stone that works in a movie. Hmm. But you know, the only way that you can really forgive that is you have a player, a friend who you really like, who can't play in every game. And so he comes and goes, <laughs> right? And this, so Gandalf in that scene was the guy who had to go out of town and you're reintroducing him at the opportune moment, but scripting that moment and getting to the point where, oh, I'm going to arrange it. So you guys have all been captured by trolls. Mm. How much GM Fiat do you think... Tolkien had to exert to get the players to that place. And that's why, that's why I say you really can't think of a role-playing game scenario the way that you can think of a movie or of a TV show. I mean, you can retroactively tell the story as if it were a movie or TV show, mm. but if you write it that way, you, you're, I, I think that you're setting up the players and the, uh, the game master to, to be either mad at you or to be disappointed in in things I, I mean i just remember running through uh you know and i was just there to, to to you know swing a sword and kill things but i remember running through the jade regent adventure path mm-hmm. um and there were things what we said were and now we're going to truck trek across the top of the world because of course we are <laughs> right there was no agency there that was just how you got to the next part of the adventure path and you know, they are paths. You are going down a path and there's a certain amount of constraint in, in getting you through this giant set of stories. Um, and and at, at some point, you know, I mean, you know, this is, we were playing the Jade region adventure path, but using dungeon fantasy, not the DFRPG because it didn't exist yeah. yet, but the independent dungeon fantasy pieces. And so we'd be like, okay, and this is what happens because this is what happens. And of course this is what happens because it's an adventure path. Um, but it didn't always make sense. Hmm. And, and every time you run into a situation where in an adventure, the game master has to look at his team of players and say, please just go with this. Hmm. That's an opportunity for someone to just say, yeah, no, we're going to play some other game or we're going to go play Xbox or hmm. right. If I wanted to be constrained this way, I could go play call of duty or, or, you know, I could go do something else in computer where, at least I can follow the pathway of Baldur's Gate from here to here to here to here and whatever, right? Yeah. So that's that's what you want to avoid, right? You want this to be something where your players are coming back. And the Game Master has to have fun too, right? Obviously. Mm. Um, 
And and what that means though is that they need to be have room to improvise to their players' taste. So yeah, it's 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 a trick, um, and it's also one of the reasons why adventures are notoriously uh, underperforming in the market. Hmm. Because everyone has their own campaign. How do you write something that appeals to everybody? Doug, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so, so much. So many insights and um, so many interesting thoughts. Along the way, we get to also talk about all your stuff, which is great. But thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. Thanks again to Douglas Cole from Gaming Ballistic for coming to talk about adventures. I'll stick his details in the show notes. And a huge thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in and sticking with us as we had a chat. On that note, I'm going to sign off. Don't forget, because we are an Anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. And if you've enjoyed listening to Doug, please please consider sharing the episode on social media. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again soon. Game on. (laughs) 